0: Hello. Yeah. Enthusiasm. Sweet. (laughs) Happy Palm Sunday, guys. This is uh, one of those very important days uh, in the church where uh, we celebrate the beginning of Holy Week. So we've been on this journey together through the season of Lent as we've been anticipating the coming of the cross and realizing that the cross... Um, is in the distance and that Jesus has now turned his face towards Jerusalem. And after his ministry of, of speaking and of miracles and all of these people flocking to him, now it's beginning to come into focus exactly what he is about and what he has come to do. And so he turns his face towards Jerusalem and we see this turning point in the Gospels where his focus begins to shift towards the cross. Um, things seem to get a little heavier and um, with each step, he begins to lay out more and more what it is going to cost to be a part of this. Not just what it's going to cost us, but even over and, and abundantly more than that, what it will cost him to win our salvation for us. And so today we are at this incredibly uh, important point in the whole story on Palm Sunday when Jesus enters Jerusalem and he, the time has come. The time has come for him to embrace his destiny of the cross. And as he enters Jerusalem, it's this incredible moment where he is greeted as the king of Israel, the long awaited Messiah. And he enters the town and people are shouting Hosanna and cheering as he comes in. Um, and as he comes in and is basically crowned king by this crowd and acknowledged who he is, um, even in that moment of of excitement and what seems to be the highest point we know that things are about to shift and things are about to turn as we enter in to Holy Week and as Jesus begins to carry his suffering and as Jesus begins to um, reach finally the cross and so that's where we are this morning John chapter 12 is where we're going to be studying um, the the story of the triumphal entry john's book we've talked about this a little bit before. But John's book is, is incredibly intentionally laid out. And, and there's a very intentional structure to the way that he builds his book. And actually, this point right here, chapter 12, is the, the pivot point of the whole thing. And so, basically, John's uh, book is, is broken down into two parts. The first part is John 1 through John 12. And the second part is John 13 through John 21. And as we look at the pattern of Jesus's life in both of these books, in this division, we see that they have the same pattern to them. And, and so they both have this, this pattern of, of the V, okay? And we've talked about this before. I feel very Richard Nixon right now. Sweet, okay. Um, we've talked about this before and how the V is the pattern of the life of Jesus. And, and this, this whole theme surrounding Jesus's life of the great, reversal of we think that things are going to be one way and Jesus surprises us with this twist and sends it the other way and so we think that the world looks one way and when Jesus gets his hands on it it completely turns it upside down right and so we see this pattern of the v and of the reversal happen in both halves of John's book the first half is referred often to as uh, the Book of Signs, okay? And it follows through the miracles, uh, the incarnation, and and Jesus' ministry. And so what we see there is this pattern of the V of Jesus at the very beginning. John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, as high as He could possibly be, speaking of Jesus. But the Word became flesh. And so Jesus intentionally embraces Uh, humility humbles himself not humbled by anybody else but humbles himself and intentionally takes the downward journey and becomes one of us instead of asking us to come to him he comes to us right beautiful so that's the first part of it and then there's a there's a shift then and as Jesus' ministry builds, as he begins to perform miracles, we see that the crowds are growing, the attention is growing around Jesus, and we see this upward motion where he's being glorified. So intentionally he humbles himself, and yet there's the reversal where God begins to glorify him and lift him back up. And in, in uh, chapter 12, we find the peak of that in the first half of the book. Chapter 12 ends with the triumphal entry. Where Jesus is, um, the excitement around him has been building and now it reaches its absolute, this, this kind of fever pitch, right? Where the people are wanting to crown him king and are calling him the king of Israel, the long-awaited Messiah. Would be a great place to end a story, but no. As we move into the second part of John's book, we see the same pattern happen again. After the triumphal entry, after that high point, right, we see that Jesus begins his long journey towards the cross and this this suffering of bearing the burden of our sin and embracing the cross, and we see Jesus once again humbling himself in this downward motion, and the closer we get, closer we get till he embraces the cross, is sacrificed for us on the cross, and even the absolute lowest point he is buried. In the grave, God is dead. As low as it gets, humbling himself intentionally. And then we know the joy of Easter Sunday that I can't wait for us to celebrate together next week. Again, the reversal happens and God exalts him and raises Jesus up from the dead. And he claims the crown of not only just king of Israel, but king of the universe. And so in the book of John, we see these two patterns together. And today we're at that turning point. It's interesting, as we enter into Holy Week, how important and how much emphasis John puts on this next week, right? So we've got 12 chapters in the book, the first 12 chapters, that basically cover three years of Jesus' life. Three whole years for 12 chapters. And then we've got nine chapters, and they cover a week. And mainly they focus on three specific days, Right. And so we see this emphasis that John puts on that. And so today, here we are at the turning point of the whole thing at the pivot, uh, at the pivot point, as we kind of talk about this idea of Jesus and his pattern of life and the pattern of the great reversal. So turn with me if you've got your Bibles, John chapter 12. And um, as as we walk through this chapter today, we're going to see that there are basically three frames we're going to pause and look at. And these three frames are pointing ahead to what is coming in this next week, in Holy Week. And it gives us a sense of what Jesus has come to do, and it gives us a sense of what is about to happen. And so everything that is happening in chapters 1 through 12 is pointing ahead to chapters 13 through 21, through why Jesus came. Everything is building to that. It's foreshadowing that. It's, it's um, making sense of what happens next. And so here we have three specific frames that we're going to look at um, through the life of Jesus. The first frame that we see is the imagery of burial. The imagery of burial that Jesus is about to embrace in this next week. It says this, six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived whom Jesus had raised from the dead. I love how they just drop it in there. You remember Lazarus? Yeah, the guy Jesus raised from the dead. Yeah, that's him. Um, Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him because, you know, he had been raised from the dead so he can completely relax. You take it easy, Lazarus. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. And she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray Jesus, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he actually cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Father, as we look at this passage and as we look at this whole chapter, I pray that you would illuminate it for us pray that you would make sense of it. Draw out the things that are hidden. And help us to see in a fresh way the things that are plain. Help us today. And as we look at this pattern of your life of the great reversal, so I pray that you would mold us into that same pattern. And that as we are humbled, you would raise us up. Help us today. We pray your spirit would just make this clear. In your name we pray. Amen. Cool. So frame number one here in the story of Mary pouring out the perfume on Jesus' feet. The first frame is this idea of burial. of Burial and the kind of death that Jesus is about to embrace. So we see here in what Mary does, it's this extravagant act of love an extravagant act of love. And, and it doesn't surprise us that in her extravagance, pouring out this perfume on the feet of Jesus, this perfume that she had been saving, and she just empties the whole thing out on his feet, no less. Okay, Normally like, a, like an anointing type thing would have been on the head, but she pours it on the feet, a sign of her humility and of how high Jesus was in her eyes. And she washes his feet with this perfume and pours it out this thing that cost her so much and it doesn't surprise us that it's met this act of extravagant love met with with a cynical kind of response from judas and probably judas is speaking on behalf of the other disciples there as well we don't let them off the hook on this and probably speaking on behalf of us if we're honest about it because often here's the thing In our normal economy of things, extravagant love looks like excessive waste. Extravagant love looks like excessive waste. But in God's economy, he sees it for what it is and his heart is moved by it. And so what we have here is this reckless act of worship. That says you are worth everything and I will take the most the thing that is that I have that is worth the most and I will pour it out all over you. And this act of reckless love and I love how it says that the smell of perfume filled the room. It Filled the room. The question for us today as we look at this first question is. What does reckless love look like for us? Are we living a reckless kind of love for God? Are we willing for ourselves to be broken and poured out? The question is, does your life, does the fragrance of your life fill the room? When people look at you and they see the way you live, does the fragrance of your life fill the room? Broken, poured out, it's a symbol of sacrifice. This isn't about claiming attention, okay, and just some wild act of worship just for the sake of getting attention. It's a wild act of worship and a wild lifestyle of worship to express affection and to express who God is in our eyes. It's this beautiful act that she pours out. The second piece of that is that it's also not just an act from her heart, but without even knowing it, She is foreshadowing what Jesus is about to do as well. What looks like excessive waste is extravagant love as Jesus offers all that he is. As Jesus himself is broken and poured out for us on the cross to win our salvation. The other piece of this is that this is also symbolic of anointing that would take place in this culture of a body when it was being prepared burial you would wrap the body and you would anoint it with perfumes and it's the symbol of anointing Jesus of preparing him for burial and you hear that in his answer back to Judas he says leave her alone she's doing what is right she's saved this for my burial as we look ahead and Jesus is is put to death there was no time for the preparation for burial his body didn't get Anointed like the normal body would because the women went back to do that, and by the time they got there, he was gone. So, this is his anointing for his burial, it's a foreshadow of what's coming. Frame number one death and burial, extravagant love, extravagant love of God's extravagant love for us displayed through the cross. The second frame. That we see is found in the next couple of verses. And it's uh, verses 9 through 11. And this is the frame of resurrection. Okay, God's answer to death and burial is resurrection. And we see that he takes it the other way. Resurrection. So here's what it says. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came. Not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. They were already plotting to kill Jesus. Now they're going to kill Lazarus as well. As if this guy hasn't already been through enough. And he's like, again? Okay. Um, for, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The first thing we see here is that Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus actually points ahead. For the whole reason that he came. He came to raise the dead. Back to life. In every way. In every way. In in spiritual terms. But the idea of resurrection. Is not only a metaphor. It is also very real. Very concrete. A very physical thing. That God intends to raise the dead. God intends to raise the dead. And the first fruits of that. Is Lazarus himself. And in this act of calling his friend Lazarus back from the dead, he lets us know why he came and exactly what it is he was about. So this ultimate miracle of all miracles to top them off, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And he says to us, do you think your situation is too far gone? Do you think your situation is too far gone? He completely reversed Lazarus' situation when he... Was dead. Okay. He can overturn yours as well. Are you trapped in a cycle of addiction. That you cannot break yourself out of. And that you know it is choking the very life out of you. He can overturn it. He can overturn it. Is there sin in your life that you know is eating away at you. That you feel like is dragging you down into the pit. He can overthrow it. Look at what he did in Lazarus' life, and he can do the same in ours. He can do the same in ours. Do you feel like there's no future for you? You look out ahead, and you can't see anything. You feel like you're bumping up against the wall. You feel like this is the end of it all. There is no future for you. Well, Lazarus had literally seen his last day. He had literally seen his last day. And if Jesus can open up the tomb... For Lazarus, he can open up a door for you. There is a future. Even when things look fiercely final, Jesus says death, not even death, has the last word. I always have the last word. And do you feel like you are running out of time? Like the time is up, that you've missed your chance. The window has closed. Do you feel like God was too late in coming through for you? Well, here's the deal. Jesus showed up to Lazarus' funeral three days late. What kind of friend is that? All right, Show up three days after the funeral, and it was right on time. And he calls Lazarus back from the dead and glorifies himself through what he does there. Your situation is not too far gone. He can overturn it, and he can reverse it. This is the God of the great reversal who takes what you think you see And completely turns it upside down. The other thing about Lazarus. Is that he is clearly a sign of a transformed life. I love the fact that Jesus. people had been rushing to see Jesus. And now they're also coming to see Lazarus. Now they're also coming to see Lazarus. Because of his transformed life. People are drawn to Jesus. This compelling story of transformation. And what they see about Lazarus. They want to know who Jesus is. What about you? What about you? What dramatic signs of resurrection are people seeing in your life? Does your life point to a God who raises the dead? Let your life be like that. And then the the spark of opposition that comes against this transformation. When God gets a hold of your life and he begins to do something in it, without a doubt, you will meet resistance. You will meet resistance. It will come in the form of family and friends who don't know what's going on with you. It will come in just all kinds of forms. You will meet resistance. Lazarus met it himself. And people wanted to kill him because he was alive. Okay. I love this. Because here's the thing, Lazarus was the first crack in the dam of the old system. The last weapon that the enemy has is death. And now Jesus is stealing that right out from under him. And we see cracks beginning to form in the dam of the old structure. And, And the old structure has been compromised And for some reason, I have this like cartoon like image uh, of Satan in my head of him trying to plug up the holes. Right. And like trying to stop it and hold it back. But, dude, it's too late. It's too late. The whole thing has been compromised and it is about to collapse and life is loose and there's no putting it back. There's no putting it back. And this tells us this is what Jesus came to do to break open the dam and let the world be flooded with life as it was meant to be. Frame number three, the final frame that we see here. Burial, death and burial, resurrection, and then finally coronation. Coronation. We have this moment where Jesus enters Jerusalem and and is welcomed by them as like this conquering hero and, and as the king. It says this, The next day the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches, which is why we call it Palm Sunday, and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And we see this great moment where Jesus enters Jerusalem, enters the city, and is welcomed as the the conquering king. Israel had been waiting for this moment. They knew that a Messiah would come and would overthrow the oppressive rule that was over them. And so they are—they are absolutely just blown away when this moment arrives in the person of Jesus. It's interesting. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, they have tried to crown him king, but he resists. And now he intentionally walks right into it. He walks right into it, and he rides in in this surprising way on a donkey. Okay. On a donkey. I've got to think that Jesus' advisors were like, you know, I'm thinking let's not do the donkey thing, right? Not a really strong symbol. How about a confident walk? That might be a little better, right? Because normally a king, a conquering, like war type of king, would ride on these, like, you know, beautiful horses as a symbol of their strength. But there's two things that's happening here. One, the sign of a king riding on a donkey was actually a, a sign used in ancient times when a king was sending the message that he was not coming as a war hero, but that he was coming bringing peace. And so Jesus lets us know exactly what kind of king he's going to be. He is the prince of peace, the one whose battles are already won, right? And so he rides in on this donkey to show that he is bringing peace and a sign of humility. And it also fulfills a prophecy from the prophet uh, Zechariah. And it says this in chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Beautiful. Beautiful. And this is the message that Jesus sends as he comes in, that he has come to set the captives free, that he is bringing an era of peace, that the battle is about to be over, that the fight is already won. Beautiful. And this sign of this great reversal, this thing that catches you by surprise, the twist you didn't see coming. I'm going to ask my friend Madison to come join me up here real quick. All right. Madison Hastings is one of my favorite people in the world. She is. <laughs> what did I do? What was that? Can I step down here and grab this mic? That is frightening. How about we go with this microphone? All right. Great. <laughs> that was not. Everybody awake. Sweet. Okay, Madison, you come on up. Need a hand? Good. All right. Is this about right? Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Madison Hastings is an amazing person, all right? She is uh, one of the leaders in this church, okay? Because she has this heart that is absolutely pure. And whenever I'm around Madison, I just see her joy. It is this authentic kind of joy, and she has a heart for God, even at her young age, that leads us, okay? Okay? That leads us. And Jesus said that this was going to be true in his kingdom, that we would look to the children as signs of what he was like and as a way to catch what his heart is like. And in that same vein, she's going to read us a children's poem, okay, that captures this idea of the great reversal inspired by this story that today is about, Palm Sunday, and the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem, of this conquering king and this prince. Of peace. Okay, so Madison's going to read us a story. It's a story called The Ballad of Barnabas Gray. Take it away.
1: Once there was a donkey named Barnabas Gray from a land long ago and a time far away. He longed to grow Old Barnes was a mule of miniature size, but the dreams in his eyes were as big as the skies. He longed to grow up and become something great, but a poor donkey's fate is carrying weight. A beast with a burden to boringly bear, a daily reminder that life's just not fair. A donkey's life stinks, Barnabas cried, with a frown on his face and a slouch in his stride. I wish that I had been born a horse, their swift in race and courageous in wars, standing majestic, mighty, and tall, while I'm in the shadows, minor and small. But one day I will run their thunderous tracks and carry the kings of the world on my back. (coughs) Oh just the thought brought a smile to his snout he daydreamed about it day in and day out then one day a whisper thread through spread through the town it passed up the street then it worked its way down rumors were stirring and swirling about the next thing you know a ruckus broke out He's coming this way. The voices were ringing, and long live the king was the song they were singing. By the time the news had reached Barney's long ears, the whisper had grown into clapping and cheers. He heard yip, yip, yahoo, and hip, hip, hooray, and let's have a parade. The king is on his way. Barnabas heard this and started to dance. His big break had come. This was his chance. So he cooked up a plan to catch the king's eye and win the king's favor when he passed him by. Barnes dressed himself up to look like a horse, in hopes that the king would choose him, of course, to carry him into his next brave battle. So he rushed into a stable and borrowed a saddle. It was made for a steed of massive size, but it would do now for his makeshift disguise. Next to his hooves he tied big blocks of wood that lifted him high in the sky when he stood. This was the silliest sight ever seen by his soul, those stilts and that sla- saddle that swallowed him whole. But he was certain this was the only way that the king would notice Barnabas Gray. <coughs> Meanwhile, in the street, the parade had begun. There was dancing and singing and laughter and fun. He pushed his way through to the front of the crowd. Then he then stood strong and st- then stood straight, strong and straight, royal and proud. He looked up, and his heart started to bray. The magnificent king was a few feet away. The king's courage was legend, his wisdom revered. He wore a strong crown and a glorious beard. He laughed with the children as he passed them by. The smile on his face was like the sun in the sky. Just then the king paused in front of our friend, he tilted his hip. he tilted his head just to take it all in. My plan is working, Barnabas thought. He hoped to catch the king's eye. Well, his eye had been caught, but what the king did next took Barnes by surprise. With strength in his voice and love in his eyes, he said. Well, Barnabas Gray, oh my, what a surprise. Is that you hiding under that dreadful disguise? I'm so glad I found you. I've searched the whole land. I need, you, I need you to help them see who I am. See, horses are for battle, and my battles are done. My next fight is my last, and I've already won. But when a king wants to show that he's bringing peace, he rides on a donkey, donkey, humble and meek. I know you have hopes as high as the stars, but, my friend, I need you as you really are. And that's how it happens when he comes to town. The world, as you know, gets turned upside down. The least become most, the last move to first. When this king shows up, all things get reversed. So, little ones, humble in heart, remember that small is a good place to start. For the small and minor and the unknown things, these become great in the hands of the king.
0: Thank you, Madison. Thank you. Great job. Awesome. Thank you. And that's the story of this king. And he rides into town on a donkey, and it looks like the craziest thing ever. But you realize he is flipping things upside down. This is the king who lives out the great reversal. And when he gets his hands on things, they're never, ever the same, Father, thank you for this story of how you ride into town as the hero, but as the Prince of Peace, that you've already won the fight, that the battle is over, and that you've come to establish peace. And today we join with churches around the world by calling you our king and we proclaim you our king. You're the king of all kings. And you've come to set things right. So this week, as we enter into Holy Week, we think about your death and your burial and this act of extravagant love broken and poured out for us. And God, we think about the resurrection and the way that you have overthrown death and there's no holding life back now. And we think about your coronation. You are the king of kings. You're the one that we've waited for. You are here. You're a different kind of king, one like we never even that we never even dreamed of hoping for. You are the best kind of king possible. We love you. We proclaim you our king. In your name we pray. Amen.